I've made a lot of references to my working life because it's a really big part of my life. But what I haven't done is describe a bit more about my employment trajectory, the opportunities and challenges that I've had, how that's changed over time, where I'm at now. I worked in a shop, which I posted about on Instagram the other day, actually, for about eight months after I left school after my A-levels. Now, I really liked that because it wasn't really a selling job. It was My job was to have lots of factual information about all of the products, all of the different types of pans, the different types of knives. Uh, I wasn't on the electrics because that was slightly more advanced, but I was basically on cooking utensils and cookware. And I had to know about all of the properties of the items and the materials they were made from and the benefits, et cetera, et cetera. So I really enjoyed being consulted by the customers and helping them choose what was right for them. That actually suited me really well. What I found much harder was a different job that I had when I was studying, where I worked part-time at Lush, um, famous for the bath bombs. Interestingly, as an autistic person, I had no trouble um, being in the midst of all of the perfume of that shop. I think because I'm a high sensory seeker when it comes to smell and colour Um, as well as some tactile stuff. I actually quite liked having that intensity of smell around me, but it was a sales job. You do need to approach customers, obviously to help them find what they're looking for, but there is a bit more of an emphasis on doing, offering to do demos of different products to encourage people to buy them naturally. Um, And they're wonderful products, so I definitely stand by them. But I found that I was completely frozen when I was put on milling about talking to customers duty. I just couldn't do it. I was only comfortable standing behind the till, taking people's payment or stocking the shelves. So that was a really obvious observation for me that I realised I can't approach people. I can't talk to people spontaneously. I can only talk to people to help them when they approach me with a question and I have got the knowledge to answer that question. A bit later on, during university, well, actually during the long holidays, so unlike most of the students at my university, I did not go home during the holidays because of the way my family was by that point. There wasn't really a home to go to. So I used to just stay in my university town on my own working. And I had various different placements through a temping agency to varying degrees of success. And this is when I sort of first started getting an idea of office work and a bit of a taste of what post-graduation office-based working was going to be like. A job that really comes to mind as actually being incredibly challenging was a placement that I had with the child courts service. And if I'd had any life experience whatsoever or knew anything about myself, I would have realised that being exposed to 
really sensitive, traumatising content about abused children and neglected children every day um, was probably going to make me quite unwell mentally. And it did. It did make me unwell. And I remember having a couple of experiences during that job where I also, I remember watching a film that I hands down should not, not have watched. And I understand now that I can't or shouldn't watch really harrowing films because I can't cope with them. I can't cope with the fact that they feel very real and the sort of emotional distress of them. So I watched a really brutal film whilst I was working at this place. And I just, I remember actually just being in a state of shock for about two weeks. I I didn't speak to anyone. I didn't talk for two weeks. And all I could think about were the scenes in this film whilst I was working in this job, working on this really sensitive content. And I had no self-knowledge or self-awareness at that age. So I didn't really appreciate what I was experiencing. But in hindsight, I can see that that was quite traumatic. And then really that brings me to my first graduate job where I had quite similar issues to that. My first job after I finished my master's was a split role at a national mental health charity. And it was half of the week I was a research officer doing qualitative research with people with experience of, um, of the mental health system in England. And half of the week I worked in the team that provided a very knowledgeable advice and information service, not a helpline, an advice and information service to people navigating the mental health system or to carers or family members um, supporting someone trying to navigate the mental health system in England. I had very similar issues there because I was, on a daily basis, I was interviewing and doing focus groups with people who had had basically extremely traumatic experiences inside of and outside of the mental health system, which is not fit for purpose and is not therapeutic. And I was also hearing about all of the really unbelievable, shocking, difficult challenges that people were having in getting support. Now, at this point in my life, I know more about the world. I know more about experiences like this. I'm more resilient. I could probably handle that kind of day-to-day content but at that point in my life after everything that I had been through to to that point and the state that I was in then I really couldn't handle it and I had nightmares most most of the time about the things that I was listening to and hearing about which ate away further at my resilience because I was I was really affected by that Focusing then on this part of my life, because that I was at that charity for 12 years in the end, including a secondment right at the end at the National NHS organisation in England, working on some strategy. But right at the beginning, when I was still in this dual role, thinking back, these were some of the, the challenges that I faced when I first started paid, contracted, employment on a, on a permanent contract when I was 25, I think, um, because I took ages getting through university and finishing university. 
So the things that presented themselves as new, very difficult challenges for me that I did not recognise, process, understand at the time, had zero coping skills, zero knowledge, zero resources, completely on my own with this stuff. First of all, the daily travel was a massive shock to my system. I was getting on different modes of public transport that I wasn't used to. I was getting on a train and the sensory overwhelm of getting on a train during rush hour and then that job got moved to a London office from a sort of outer borough office into a central London office. So the shock of an early start a long commute involving a walk, a train, and then a tube. And then in some cases, in one of the offices we were in, I had a bus on top of that. The sensory overwhelm every single day from that journey was a massive shock to my system. I would cry most mornings on my way into work with the pain of the noise Um, especially the beeping of train doors, which was just absolutely unbearable. And I've done, I've spoken in separate episodes about the state of my mental health during that time. My nervous system was completely shot. That new requirement every day for the foreseeable however many years was immediately impossible and untenable, yet I did it. (laughs) I just did it. Then the office space. So... It was kind of new for me working in office spaces with the kind of dynamic where there was quite a lot of buzz, collaboration and people who socialised. I suppose it was a relatively young office and I hadn't I hadn't been in an office like that before. I'd only been in much smaller um, office spaces with um, just older, quieter colleagues. So there was a whole load of new stuff for me around the expectations of professional and social interactions in the office space, which I found completely overwhelming because it never occurred to me that work would be anything other than focus on the content of your work, go home at the end of the day. It was a massive shock to me that I was going to need to navigate work-based relationships, get to know people in order to figure out how to work with them. It seemed completely irrelevant to me to need to know anyone on any kind of social or personal level if we were all there to do a job. And it took me a long time to understand because no one actually said this to me directly so it took me a long time to get a grasp of this basically by watching other people and also noticing awkward lots of awkward moments where colleagues would kind of share a look with each other when talking to me or would rush in to sort of save me from a moment or a conversation when I was trying to navigate something and clearly causing terrible offence and saying things that you just don't say in the workplace. So that was that was really, really hard. And I remember actually becoming quite attached to one specific colleague and 
just basically doing whatever that person told me or just going taking very literally everything that person told me about this person or that person or even down to I remember them saying something like oh well the Christmas party is for the others so I took that to mean well I won't go to the Christmas party and I remember at the end of the away day that preceded that Christmas party I hid in the toilet cubicles with no intention of going to the party because I just knew I couldn't navigate it and I remember my line manager coming to open the bathroom door it was in like a a hired venue so it was you know a big loose with lots of cubicles and I was just standing in a cubicle with the door locked knowing that they could see a locked door and probably my feet and they came in and they called my name and they called it again and they called it again and I just stood in the cubicle not answering and eventually they left and eventually everyone left and then I was safe to go home and I was asked either the following probably the following day because I don't think it was a Friday night why I hadn't gone to the party and I didn't have an answer I hadn't prepared an answer and then I sort of very awkwardly said something about well I kind of thought I wasn't meant to go because my colleague had said that it wasn't for me to go to and they just thought that was completely bizarre now that's a super obvious telltale sign that anyone who knows one thing about autism would probably think there's an adult locking themselves in a loo that's really autistic but no one knew those things okay I also massively struggled with not having the structure of a definite timetable, having to be responsible for my own work planning, which I just didn't do for the first few years. Um, And I was probably very slow, but at the same time, I'm able to do things quite fast. So I was sort of relying on the inconsistency that got me through school, which was I just don't move until I sort of start being prompted towards the end where the managers are like, where is the such and such and how are you getting on with this thing? And then I would try and glean a bit of information about what was expected. And then once I had that, then I would do it really, really fast. Anything administrative just sent me into a complete spin and I would get details all jumbled up. I really struggled with any kind of scheduling organizing any kind of meeting focus groups anything like that I also had to navigate London to go to external meetings or outside of London because I had to go and do interviews at various mental health services really really hard yeah just found it incredibly difficult to navigate and would often arrive late and dysregulated to where I was going so weirdly Incredibly, I didn't get performance managed or fired from that job, even though I was unbelievably struggling. I guess the quality of what I was doing saved me. And what happened was I ended up actually being given an opportunity that kickstarted my whole career, which was my senior you know, employer, director level at the time, picked up on the fact that I really was attracted to the stuff that they were doing kind of in the margins that was around appealing 
to various national bodies for changes to national guidelines, policies that affected people's access to mental health services and mental health treatment. Whenever there was a piece of work like that going on that my colleagues were working on, I would just be attracted to it really strongly and find myself in the middle of what they were doing, doing a bit of research, drafting letters to various agencies and just getting it, just massively seeing the point, loving the fact that it was dealing with the overarching rules and regulations of the stuff that was basically impacting on people every single day in loads of different ways. I could see that it was like the macro picture of the microcosm of what was happening to people every day. So they could see that I had a real affinity with that kind of work. And incredibly, they asked me whether I wanted to become and go for the role of a policy officer, their first policy officer at this organisation. And I absolutely jumped at it. And that was the beginning of my career in policy, health policy, and the beginning of my career in then starting to collaborate with research colleagues and external organisations and external colleagues and basically making the case for change to policy, making the argument, proving there's an issue, suggesting a different um, policy approach. So I got the opportunity to make that shift, which was brilliant, but I was still having all of these issues and my mental health was still very, very bad. I survived staying employed, even though I was super dysregulated, not very good at, in inverted commas, work relationships, because my expertise in the content developed very fast and in quite a sophisticated way. By this point, I was really enjoying the actual content of the work, but I could not answer the phone. And in fact, I put my phone on silent because I couldn't handle it ringing and I couldn't pick it up if I didn't know who was calling. So I would count on people leaving a voicemail, listening to the voicemail, and then taking a good 24 hours or so to get myself psyched up to calling them back or sending them an email. I was also at this point becoming really paranoid about management, about anyone senior to me, anyone in authority. I was basically very, very scared of managers. And I I became quite avoidant of them, which was sad because actually the people who managed me at that organisation were, yeah, they were really supportive and they were very understanding, actually, given all of this. And I'm grateful. I'm so grateful to them for giving me those chances and kickstarting my career. I mean, that's huge. But I was scared of people and I was scared of them. And I did everything I could to avoid contact with managers, which didn't help me clarify expectations and help me feel confident in what I was doing. So what happens in work like that when you become very expert is you tend to get encouraged to go for manager roles. And there tends to be an assumption that you're going to be absolutely fine managing people. Now, in some respects, I I was able to manage people as long as they were people who felt really, really confident about what they were doing, why they were doing it, how they were doing it. 
But I found it much more difficult to support people if maybe there was a lot of change going on or there was a lot of ambiguity because I really struggled to navigate ambiguity. So there was a lot that it took me a long time to learn about managing and supporting other people. And I think it probably takes anyone some time. But ultimately, I lacked various aspects of emotional intelligence. I've learned a lot of that since, um, in, partly because of my own experiences and therefore kind of been able to develop a better grasp of what other people are experiencing. With a added responsibility then, there are kind of higher stakes as well around one's general approach to working relationships, which I still was struggling with because I was still getting feedback on a regular basis that I wasn't investing enough in my relationships. I wasn't taking the time to get to know people. I was too inflexible in terms of how I wanted things to be done. I was not interested enough in other people's points of view, which I don't actually think is strictly true. I think I really enjoy collaborating But I think the point was I was perceived as not being interested in other people's experience. Also higher stakes when it comes to issues with executive functioning. So I've had some quite mega experiences, as have a lot of people. There's a really deadly combination as an autistic person with ADHD when you're dysregulated, which is that you can be super detail-oriented and then go into too pedantic an approach to say drafting a press release but at the same time because of executive functioning dictating basically whether you're able to start or finish a piece of work real issues with not seeing something through to proper completion to quality when actually it really matters and I've had quite a few of those experiences And they were confusing at the time. They were confusing to me. They were confusing to my colleagues. They were confusing to my manager because I've got a reputation for being an absolute stickler for detail and accuracy. So how could these things happen? And it's all part of what I now understand is the spiky profile. So neurodivergent people, particularly autistic people, people with ADHD or both, quite often will have this spiky profile where there's a very, very high level of capability at some types of work. And in the same person have alarmingly low levels of capability, a lot of which then gets muddled by the state of your executive functioning and how regulated you are on things that seem like they're equivalent in terms of complexity, um, responsibility, And, you know, just how basic or advanced they are. So a lot of the things that I did badly in the end were weirdly conflicting to the things that I was doing unusually brilliantly. And now I know why, but I didn't know why then, which meant that I ended up really living in a kind of a constant state of fear at not knowing when I was going to do some terrible mistake or faux pas just never knowing when a thing like that was going to happen. I could be going along really straightforwardly, feeling really in control, feeling really confident, and then a thing like that happens, and it's like the world is just ripped away from under your feet, and everyone's looking at you like, oh, we thought you were capable, 
Maybe not. And I'm thinking, oh, I thought I was capable. Maybe not. So confusing. And that's kind of the state that I was in around all of the things I was describing in the first episode of season one. No, sorry, not the first episode. The burnout episode, which I think actually was episode four. So where am I now? Well, now I know what's going on, don't I? So now I'm out as autistic professionally, which means I can be just way more open about my capabilities, my risk points. I can plan with people how we're going to communicate with each other. I can be really upfront about what I'm just not able to do, what I can do with support, etc. I'm able now to understand my state of regulation. So my last episode, episode one of season two, is a whole new level of um, awareness of my brain, body, nervous system. So I can actually monitor my state of regulation. I can take breaks. I can look after myself, which is having an immediate impact on my work relationships and my executive functioning. For this reason, I'm also much better to able to support colleagues and support the people that I manage. I'm able to be confident, assertive, clear about what expectations are whilst being supportive and kind. And I know I am. I can see the fruits of that and I can see when it's slipping, as I discussed in the last episode, which I hands down categorically do not want because that isn't me and that's not what I want. And do things still crop up from time to time? Yes, a bit because of what I described in the last episode. But now there is a language. Now there's an understanding of there's actually there's an actual cultural difference between autistic people and non-autistic people. And that's okay. And I'm not doing anything wrong. There is just difference there. And so I'm navigating that more confidently and I am expecting people to meet me halfway because that is good and right and fair. So what I do know about where I'm going professionally is I'm very I'm very focused and committed to becoming an inclusive manager and leader. So I've I've basically had this massive awakening as to how shockingly ableist professional life and the majority of workplaces actually are there is absolutely an assumption um, that candidates for a job or people in a job are not disabled and the onus is completely on them to describe their disability and what kinds of accommodations they will need and then the employer makes a judgment about whether that can be accommodated that's just not realistic it's just not true lots of people are disabled and either don't realize they are or know they are but don't really have a language for it which I think was where I kind of was or do have a language for it but but aren't able on their own to describe very specific accommodations that they need to be in place in order for the workplace to be inclusive. It's very obvious to me now, workplaces just need to be inclusive from the get-go. So there's all this stuff around disability. 
and neurodivergence, but there's also all of the other protected characteristics. Now, I've got limited knowledge around the, the range of protected characteristics, but I can see that it is my responsibility now as a manager and a leader to be educated, to look for good practice guidance, to be challenging my organisation as an employer, if need be, if practices aren't actually good to good practice, and changing the way we do things and putting things into place. So that's, that is a very clear focus for me. Um, and I've already started putting some things in place. And actually, one of the things that I think exemplifies an ableist professional culture societally is the absolute expectation that everyone can speak. And I think what I'm coming to understand is that we need to write job descriptions and person specifications for jobs really carefully and really, really genuinely think, what are the actual skills and knowledge that we need for this job? And if someone doesn't have to speak to do a job, then they shouldn't have to. I hope that was interesting, useful, relevant. Please have a look in the footnote of the podcast information to see how you can get in touch with me. I really love hearing from people. Okay, thank you very much and take care, everyone. Bye.